are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. Hello, everyone, and welcome to February. If you enjoyed last month's discussion with two leading researchers in Alberta's lung health community, this month will certainly not disappoint. We are so fortunate to go back-to-back with double physician episodes. This month's guests are Dr. Jason Weatherald and Dr. Kieran Halloran. We're going to be discussing everything lung transplant and the research that is making lung transplant a more efficient and better process today. Just to be completely transparent, sometimes I tape the introduction to the show and to all podcasts before we do the interview. Sometimes I tape it after the interviews. In this one, I'm taping this introduction after the interview, and holy, do I have to say that interview was absolutely incredible. The things that I learned, and I like to think I know a decent amount of uh, about lung health, but the things I learned, astronomical, things about lung transplant, things about tissue rejection and new technologies coming out on lung transplant is just incredible. So please stick around. You won't regret it. Listen to the whole episode. I can promise you're going to love it. But before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick plug for a major operation going down at Alberta Lung. I've spoken about it before, but it has been a while since we've discussed it on the show and since I will be talking about it with our guest today, I thought, I, I thought that I better give you, our listeners, a quick reminder. Breathing Space is the name of Alberta Lung's home away from home for lung transplant patients and their caregivers. We have purchased land near the University of Alberta Hospital to build this incredible space, but we are in still need of donations to afford the building itself. If you haven't seen the renderings of the building, my gosh, they're incredible. Go to our website and check it out for yourself. In Canada, we like to think of our healthcare system as free. However, that isn't telling the entire story. When patients need a lung transplant, yes, the surgery is free. But everything else around the surgery is not. If the patient has to pick up their lives and move to Edmonton, as many do, this can be an immense cost. Housing, groceries, and just general things to make them comfortable in their recovery can cost patients into the six-figure mark. That is why we are asking Albertans and everyone across the country to donate to this amazing initiative. The University of Alberta Hospital covers the largest geographical area in Canada for lung transplants, receiving patients from Saskatchewan, BC, and the territories, and I believe even Manitoba in some instances. We at Alberta Lung believe that the only thing lung transplant patients should be worrying about is their recovery, not their finances. So help us fund this incredible project and go to www.ablung.ca today to make a donation and help make our lung transplant dream a reality. Okay, on to today's show. As I mentioned earlier, the physicians that we have on the show today are Dr. Weatherald and Dr. Halloran. As part of this episode, we will be discussing the Alberta Transplant Institute. 
This organization unites researchers, clinicians, educators, trainees, allied health personnel, and patient partners to enhance transplantation and donation in Alberta. With a focus on cutting-edge research, improved patient care, education, and advocacy, the Institute's clinical transplant programs conduct 250 to 300 procedures annually for kidney, heart, liver, pancreas, intestinal, and obviously lung transplantation in adults and children. For some background on the physicians themselves, Dr. Halloran is an associate professor and lung transplant specialist at the University of Alberta Hospital. He is the medical co-chair of the Transplant Council for Connect Care and a member of the Trans- Alberta Transplant Institute Research and Executive Committees and also a member of the Alberta Respirology Centre Strategic Planning Committee. Dr. Rutherald is an assistant professor with expertise in respirology and pulmonology. He has expertise in pulmonary vascular disease and lung transplantation. He also created the first national registry for pulmonary hypertension in Canada. Don't worry, we'll get into what that is in the show. Dr. Weatherald is especially close to Alberta Lung as he won a lung health research grant from us for his project titled Research Priorities for Lung Transplantation, a James Lind Alliance Priority Setting Partnership. Dr. Weatherald believes that priorities for lung transplant research according to the patient's caregivers and clinicians involved in lung transplantation have not previously been defined. His project is the first to engage patients and caregivers by working with all lung transplant centers in Canada to inform the topics that matter most to the field. Today we'll be talking about the Alberta Transplant Institute, Dr. Halloran and Dr. Rutherald's specific research and how this ties into why breathing space is so important. I'm excited to get chatting with these two amazing doctors, so without any more delay, I'll send you through to my chat with Dr. Jason Weatherald and Dr. Kieran Howard. I am so fortunate to be sitting down with two of the leading thinkers in lung transplant in Alberta and Canada. So a huge welcome to Dr. Jason Weatherald and Dr. Kieran Halloran. I'll start with you, Dr. Weatherald. How's it going today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. I mean, we're all in Edmonton, so it could be better. It's, we we had a cold snap. We had, for those not in Edmonton, we had the nicest November and December. We had basically a plus degree Christmas, and now we're we're getting our comeuppance with the minus thirties. And I checked my phone this morning; it was minus forty with the weather, uh, with the wind chill. So I've decided not to go to the gym today, and I'm going to work out from home. But Anyways, uh, so uh, how about you, Dr. Halloran? How is everything with you and everything in the lung transplant world? I'm good. We we had to cancel our uh, our lung tra- transplant program drinks today because the uh, extreme weather. So we're a little sad about that. That's fair. Everything gets everything gets pushed on the back burner burner when the weather is this cold. I know. I saw my local school district where I went to school uh, in elementary and junior high. They canceled buses, so there's a bunch of Happy elementary school kids in St. Albert today. But anyways, so perfect. We might as well dive straight into the questions. And I'd like to first get to know a bit about each of your own particular research interests. So I'll send it over to you first, Dr. Weatherald. I noticed 
in your bio that you have expertise in pulmonary vascular disease and that you also started the first national registry for pulmonary hypertension. And I know that those might not be exactly related. Maybe they are. You can you can let us know. But I'd love a general overview of what you like to research and maybe what your day to day looks like. Sure. Yeah. My, I'm, I'm one area of my clinical expertise is in, in pulmonary vascular disease. And, and in the past, a lot of those patients went on to get lung transplantation. And that's kind of the, um, you know, way the only way you really you can cure the disease uh, over the last 20 years or so we've developed a lot more effective medical therapies and so transplantation is is delayed or even completely avoided for many patients but but it is a, a severe lung disease that often requires transplant and, and my research focus has been mostly um, clinical research uh, looking at epidemiology and ways of, of risk stratifying patients to try to figure out um, how to either escalate therapy or or when it might be more appropriate to refer them for transplantation. Um, and, and in terms of the national registry, I'm, I'm about one person involved in that. I think, you know, I, I was involved at the beginning and, and continue to be, but, uh, um, it's, it's really a, a national effort and, and it's led by, uh, colleagues in Vancouver, um, who've coordinated this national registry, but it, it has been, um, successful and we've had some, um, publications come from our registry already, including in, in some pretty um, top tier journals. So uh, we are certainly proud of the, the work we've been able to do um, there. And then my other interest is in clinical trials and in, in, including um, trials that, that I'm leading and then trials that I'm a part of as a, a local investigator. And, and these span the pulmonary vascular disease space, but also um, in, in the near future, um, some lung transplantation um, trials too. So uh, it, it's, it's a great diverse and varied practice that's um, really exciting and, and keeps me interested. That's for sure. Awesome. And I'll stick with you for a second. I know personally, I, I mean, I've worked in lung health for three years. That's not a lot, but it's enough to know certain diseases. I don't even know what pulmonary vascular disease is. Could you give our listeners just a general base of what's, I don't want to say wrong with you, but what's happening in the body when you have pulmonary vascular disease? Sure. Uh, there, there's several pulmonary vascular diseases. The the most common ones, uh, it's often used as a like a synonym for pulmonary hypertension, which is when you have high blood pressure in the lungs, and that can be caused by uh, many heart and lung diseases. Um, it, most of us are talking about two specific diseases when we say pulmonary vascular disease. Um, one called pulmonary arterial hypertension which used to be called primary pulmonary hypertension, it, it, which is a disease of the arteries in the lungs where they get sort of narrowed and, and constricted, and it makes it difficult for the heart to pump blood into the lungs, um, which results in heart failure. And um, the other sort of common form of pulmonary vascular disease is, is something called CTEF, which stands for chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, um, which is a a complication of, of blood clots in the lungs and happens in about three or four percent of people who get a blood clot in the lungs where the, the clot doesn't really go away with therapy and it forms scar tissue in the lungs and then similarly blocking a bunch of the blood vessels making it hard to pump blood into the lungs and so those are the two main pulmonary vascular diseases that we talk about and as i said before we do have effective medical and surgical treatments for those conditions but but some patients do end up requiring lung transplantation as sort of a last resort to to save their their lives and improve their quality of life super interesting i guess you learn something new every day even as a as a person who's decently versed in lung diseases so we'll throw it over to you dr halloran i'd love to know what you like to research and i saw that you have an interest understanding tissue rejection so how does this influence 
how you do research and what you actually research? Yeah, so so I'm I'm sort of for, in the fortunate position of being able to be 100% calibrated to lung transplantation. Um, my my the entirety of my clinical work is with lung transplant patients. Um, you know, working with them before their transplant, um, being involved in allocating their donors to them, and then managing them lifelong afterwards, which is a which is a complex task. It's a complex uh, state of of living for them. Um, and then my research is entirely focused on lung transplantation as well, which is a great position to be in because you can the, the questions that arise when you're seeing these people in the clinic and when you're talking to them and when you're talking to their families, you can then bring it back to your academic work. <clears throat> and uh, so some of the areas where um, you know I, I've been working in is um, is in looking at different ways in which the lung uh, the transplanted lung can become dysfunctional. Um, and, and that can have big implications for patients. They, they have a poor quality of life, but it, it can also shorten their life after transplant, um, when their, when their lung transplant starts rejecting and when it starts failing. So I've, I've been interested in, in, in looking at the ways in which the transplanted lung can go wrong, even defining some, some new language for the ways the transplanted lung can go wrong. Um, but you know, one of our big problems in transplant is that we, uh, the, we can't really tell very well when rejection is happening. Uh, the way we biopsy the lungs um, and and the way we analyze it under a microscope doesn't give us very high quality information about that. And so then we're left in a position of not really knowing when to treat them uh, or when not to treat them. And um, so we we sort of set out on a quest now about 10 years ago to try to make that better by not only looking at the uh, microscopic changes in lung tissue, but looking at the molecules in lung tissue and the gene expression. Um, and uh, that has looks like it's giving us higher quality, higher fidelity information and, and may, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a big now 10 year international multi-center cohort involving Australia and the United States and, and centers in Europe um, uh, that we've been leading uh, we've been able to probably um, probably define rejection in a new way, um, and we're continuing to leverage those um, uh, those opportunities and those relationships uh, in in new studies of looking at, uh, at at the molecules of rejection both in the tissue and in blood. Um, and then I'm I'm also interested in um, how we look at at patients, um, you know, risk moving into a transplant. This is a this is a big thing. Is is how we uh, how we make decisions about whether or not someone is too high risk for a lung transplant, and that that's a tough thing for a patient because you know you 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 might be telling them that they you think that a transplant's much more likely to harm them than to help them, um, but they're you know they're left in a position where they're then left with a chronic lung disease. So trying to really define those factors that that uh, on which we make decisions uh, and and about. Um, about how we communicate those decisions, I think is really important. Um, so those are those are kind of my my big areas of research. There's some other areas like um, the, the the lung storm that can happen immediately after transplant that I'm interested in, called primary graft dysfunction. But uh, a lot of it basically is is housed around the dysfunctional transplanted lung. Is 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 in essence what ties it together. That's amazing. That's super interesting. One one thing. Uh... Dr. Weatherald and I were talking about before we hit record, and I didn't know this. I assumed that both of you actually performed lung transplants, but he uh, confirmed with me that you don't. You deal with 
the things before. So risk factors and and who who not I can't say deserves, but who who gets a lung transplant because of the different boxes that they tick. And then you also deal with the patients after and ensuring that they're making a good and speedy recovery. So that's super interesting. I thought that the that the people that did the lung transplants also looked before and after looked after the patients, but uh, the, there's actual specialized surgeons that work uh, in the operating room for lung transplants. So that's interesting. And I think that's something that our listeners will definitely appreciate. Go ahead, Dr. Yeah, that's, that's, a, um, that's a common uh, thing that we have to communicate to patients. And I always tell patients that lung transplant is a medical, is a combined medical surgical discipline. Um, and, and that the, the person they're meeting is a physician, not a surgeon. Um, and that um, the surgeon, they will meet through the lung transplant, you know, process of, of workup, and then they'll meet on the day of the operation. But for the most part, the way our program works is that is that um, you know the the kind of core of the management and the, and the the uh, for for the patients, the face of transplantation to them is the medical team, the physician team, um, right from day zero onwards, working with the intensive care unit, working with the surgeons. Uh, but we're such a multidisciplinary team. I think that the the um, the, the core thing is to dispel the notion that this can really be done by any any even small group. This is a this is a uh, um, an endeavor that requires physicians, surgeons, intensive care uh, doctors who are amazing, uh, nurses, intensive care nurses, ward nurses, nurse coordinators, dietitians, social workers, um, uh, cardiologists, anesthesiologists. Um, you know, it, it's physiotherapists are critical. Occupational therapists are critical. The team and the world that we move through is is enormous, and uh, we really try to get those people together regularly to celebrate them and make it clear to them that this can only happen because there's this big army um, that that makes it work for people, uh, and the patients really feel that as they move through. They 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 understand all the complex pieces that are required. Yeah, that's amazing. I never really thought of the network that is, like you said, required to to put this kind of surgery together, and and it's obviously really important. It saves people's lives. So that's amazing. Thanks, thanks for telling us that. Uh, and we'll switch back to you, Doctor Weatherold, for this question. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a bit about your new research project that you won a lung health research grant for from Alberta Lung. So. Uh, just a little bit about it. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering why you think that priorities coming directly from patients and caregivers in lung transplantation are so important to the process of the transplantation overall. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you to to Alberta Lung for funding this. Um, Dr. Halloran is also a, a partner on this research with, with us. Um, and um, it, really, it's been driven by a, a master's student that we supervised uh, named uh, Dr. Uh, Margaret Michaels, and um, really, the the idea here is is to hear from patients and their caregivers and clinicians uh, who manage lung transplantation what problems they experience and see in their daily lives that they want us to solve with future research. And and the sort of there there's a methodology to this um, for priority setting, and uh, the the fundamental rationale for it is that. Um, 
the research being funded should be relevant to the people that it affects. And, and we assume that that's the case when research is driven by researchers and scientists, but it, it isn't always the case. And, and there's only a finite amount of money to go around to fund research. And so we want to make sure that we're, we're doing things that are relevant to patients. And, and sometimes even new ideas and new questions come from these exercises. And, and this is a project that is actually mirrors um, a project that I, I previously led in the pulmonary vascular disease space, where we partnered with patients across the country to sort of understand their ideas and problems and 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 formulated those into questions that could be researched by future um, endeavors. And then, you know, we checked with the existing literature to make sure that the questions brought up by patients weren't already adequately answered. And those that weren't, that were truly uncertain, we went back to them um, and asked them to help us prioritize them. And, and the output of that is like a top 10 list of questions that can be answered by future research. Um, that are prioritized. And so we wanted to do this for lung transplantation as well, because it, it does have implications uh, for our own research in terms of, you know, what we want to focus on and making sure that it's relevant to those people affected by it. And um, again, very grateful for the support from Alberta Lung, because it is um, a, a process that requires partners uh, from the patient side uh, and um, requires time and effort. And, and indeed, it's, it's, um, I think really important to do this for all um, medical areas to ensure that uh, we are aligning with the priorities of patients and their families. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I can't wait to see what the results are. So in sticking with that in a similar vein and staying with your research project, I'm wondering how, and this is kind of an ad lib question, you didn't see this one beforehand, so no worries if you have to think it through. I'm wondering how the qualitative analysis that you do with the patients and caregivers, how do you turn that into something that makes sense scientifically and can be used efficiently to inform lung transplants facilities across the country and, like you said, inform future research? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, there is a process and a methodology to doing this. It's uh, from an organized, it was developed and kind of validated by an organization from the United Kingdom called the James Lind Alliance. And it is, it's an iterative process and it, it's, it kind of straddles qualitative and quantitative research to some extent, but really patients, we, we survey the patients and their families and we ask them what problems they have. And, and some of the responses are not formulated as questions. They may be brief statements. And we we try to group them together into similar ideas and topics. And then we work with patients who are on our research committee and they sort of say, what do you think this person meant by this? And some of it is a bit interpreted, but interpretive, but we, we try to group ideas together and then formulate questions from those ideas and questions that, that could be answered uh, by future research. And importantly, they're not, they're not phrased as research questions. They are researchable questions that could be um, narrowed and focused into a research question that could be the subject of a future funding application or a project. So there is some interpretation to some of this, but we do it um, iteratively with our patient partners to make sure that we're going down the right track. And, and then we go back to them at the end, once we have a list of potential questions to to say like which of these matter the most to you and, and it, it it sort of culminates in a in a really fun and interesting workshop that that will be done with uh, patients across the country uh their family members and, and lung transplant uh, clinicians and not just doctors but as kieran said um you know the other people that have a major stake in this uh specialty including physiotherapists nurses they will be in this workshop and, and we break out into small groups and we discuss these um, potential uncertainties or, or questions and and share perspectives. And, and when I did this in pulmonary vascular disease, it was really fascinating because uh, patients may go into the workshop with preconceived notions about what 
what matters to them. But then as they explore what some of the other questions actually mean and why they're important from the clinical perspective, their priorities can change. And the same thing with clinicians. And so we come to a group consensus about what are the most important questions. So it is it is dynamic. Um, it is a bit... Um, but it, but it has a very nice um, methodology and it's it's run by uh, trained uh, facilitators to get to that top 10. So we're, we're kind of avoiding avoiding any particular people having too much of an opinion or too much influence on the outcome of that. And we it, fundamentally, it should reflect patient and caregiver uh, priorities and not doctor priorities. Awesome. Yeah, that's really incredible. Clinical trials have always really intrigued me. I, I spoke with the CEO of a, a tech med company. Uh, a, oh, this is, might be a year ago now, and they connect patients, people with clinical trials, and and it's obviously really important to do. So uh, it, it helps with research, and it's just necessary. So we'll throw this next question back to Dr. Halloran. Uh, so you are a member of the Alberta Transplant Institute Research and Executive Committees. So I'm hoping you can give our listeners a little breakdown of what the Institute is generally, and what your roles on the different committees are. Sure. The, the, the ATI is, um, it's, it's been, uh, about 10 years now since it formed. Um, and the intent is it for it to be the academic, uh, educational and advocacy home for transplantation at the, uh, at the U university of Alberta and at the university of Alberta hospital site. Um, the <clears throat> transplantation is, is, uh, kind of complex because it, the, there's every different organ group um, and, and, and even um, different specialties that exist to support transplantation, but they're all from kind of different areas. So if you can imagine our training works that, you know, you, we train in maybe Jason and I trained in, in internal medicine, and then we did subspecialty training in lung, lung medicine. Uh, but, you know, then we go into transplantation um, and, we still sort of, uh, our, our administrative home tends to be with lung medicine still. Uh, and similarly with kidney people and liver people and uh, people who are involved in infectious diseases with transplantation. We all kind of come from our own home base. Uh, and so it was necessary to have uh, a structure where everybody could get together to be uh, to be a community and to um, to, you know, share information and 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 collaborate. Um, and so, uh, over that time period, initially with, with, uh, with, um, uh, Atul Humar started the, uh, the organization and then, and then went to uh, Toronto and Lori West, uh, took it over here and has been running it for about the past, uh, decade. Um, you know, its main focus is to, we get together, uh, for, uh, for lectures to have, you know, very international speakers now, as well as to talk about our own research, um, it's a home for collaborations, uh, scientific collaborations, where we can uh, launch projects together. And um, and um, and uh, there's some funding uh, that that uh, the ATI is able to um, to uh, uh, procure through um, through um, uh, private companies uh, and uh, and uh, don donation organizations, and, and in some cases. Uh, uh, donor families, uh, where then we're able to uh, run things like research days, uh, lecture series, um, and and these uh, uh, research initiatives and, and granting initiatives in collaboration with a national agency called the the CDTRP. 
Um, so it's it, in many ways it's uh, it's intended to be a uh, a focal point for for transplantation at the U of A uh, hospital, um, and and it does it does function as that, and 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 it's been a really uh, helpful organization to keep us grounded and tied together. Um, and uh, we're actually just launching a new um, a new uh, search for a new director because Lori West has decided to step uh, to step down. Uh, and so it's kind of an exciting time where we're trying to find the next uh, the next leader for the ATI. Um, my role the, on on the research uh, and executive committee, the executive committee kind of just looks at at the operations side of of uh, the ATI, and then the research committee looks at things like uh, research day and uh, and um, the uh, the grant and and uh, uh, funding opportunities um, and adjudication for those. So um, yeah. That's really amazing. It's great to know that we have kind of that sort of thinking hub in Alberta where physicians and surgeons and everyone can just come together and put their brains together and see what's best for for health in Alberta, the health landscape in Alberta. So I'm really excited for these next couple of questions. They involve sort of more social aspects in health. Um, and I'll throw this one back to Dr. Weatherald and actually maybe Dr. Heller and you can comment comment on it as well. So I, I saw that one of your papers, Dr. Weatherald, is titled Sex and Gender in Lung Health and Disease More Than Just X's and Y's. So I'm wondering if you can give us a little background into that paper and maybe what you learned when writing it. And we actually spoke before uh, this taping and you said that there are uh, differences in sex and gender in lung transplant and and what people, how that, how that affects treatment. So maybe give us a little background into that and uh, we can throw it over to Dr. Halloran after if you have any additional comments. Sure. So yeah, that that paper was was actually an editorial for a, a series that uh, um, with some uh, colleagues I had brought forward for the European Respiratory Review um, to to review sex and gender factors and how they influence the development of lung diseases and, and outcomes um, across many different lung diseases. So it, there was a series of articles that reviewed that, for instance, in asthma and pulmonary hypertension um, and in airways disease, and so. Really, the concept was to was to focus on some definitions. First of all, like when we when we talk about sex, we're talking about biological sex. So you know, X's and Y's and and hormonal factors that influence the risk for disease and how disease may progress in response to treatment and outcomes. And and so uh, that's different than gender. Like gender being a, a sort of a, a sociological construct that it, it involves a lot of different factors, including your social roles. Um, and and um, not just gender identity, but there's many other factors that influence health that are gender related and, and not necessarily sex related. And that's really important because these are determinants of health outcomes. And, and I think um, uh, it is important in lung diseases on the pre-transplant side and also probably on the post-transplant side. Um, and I think in the transplant context, from my point of view, you know, sex and gender have really important um, equity implications in in who ultimately undergoes transplantation. And, and perhaps Dr. Halloran is more suited to elaborate on some of those inequities in the system that, that are not intentional or structural, I think, but bi biologic and, and provide, or I guess, pretend barriers to, for instance, female patients sometimes getting uh, transplanted, um, you know, there are, there are many factors that influence uh, wait times and that, that can be one of them. So I think it's important that we recognize these and study them and try to eliminate those barriers with, with future research. 
That's awesome. I'll throw it over to you, Dr. Halloran, if you have any any comments on sex and gender and lung transplant and, and how it affects different people. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, Jason, you know, the, the, probably the, ma the main way that this affects uh, lung transplantation is that um, when we when we um, put donor lungs into somebody, um, you know, we have to uh, we have to modify their immune system from operating at a normal level to suppressing it down so that their body won't attack and and destroy those those transplanted organs, which it can do very efficiently if left to its own devices over the next couple of days and weeks. Um, and the, the uh, one thing that can, that can accelerate that or potentiate that is if somebody has preformed antibodies against human tissue in their circulation. <clears throat> and there's a couple of ways you can get those is if you've had a blood transfusion, if you've had a previous transplant, but the main way that, that people get them, obviously that human beings get them is through pregnancy and being exposed to uh, a baby that is uh, the genetic makeup is partially not yours. And this is obviously something that only affects um, women. And, and it's a huge discrepancy um, and, and, a, and, a, and to some degree, an access to care issue um, that, uh, that we've kind of had to solve. And when we looked at the, when, when you look at the world's data, more men are being transplanted than women consistently um, and some of that is is the is the milieu of lung diseases that we transplant, but most of it is is probably people being worried about these circulating antibodies, um, and and giving them a, a donor lung which they're kind of primed to reject. And um, so, because this really primarily affects women, and because we um, we uh, you know this was this is an access to care issue, we kind of uh, as a as an international community. Um, and, and locally, we've tried to solve it by modifying the way that we, that we uh, treat their immune systems um, to be, you know, individualized and personalized towards their specific scenario so that we can safely give them a, a donor lung, uh, despite the fact that these antibodies and we're able to manage the antibodies uh, to make transplantation safe for them in a scenario which would otherwise not have been possible. Um, and we we've, we've published um, our experience on that on on the safety of doing that, and we feel it is safe. Um, other centers uh, in Toronto uh, and in um, in uh, Philadelphia and in, in Paris have published their experience as well. And so we feel internationally uh, as a community confident that we can do that. But there are still centers that are reluctant to do that, and so we're still trying to kind of move the needle that um, that you know we probably shouldn't be. Uh, you know, denying um, women transplants on the basis of these antibodies anymore when we feel we can safely manage them. Um, but but it is something that that uh, requires kind of an ongoing conversation and resources at the individual center levels and uh, and an ongoing uh, discussion. Yeah, that's really incredible. I'm thinking back to some of my ethics classes, and we talk about how society should search for equity and not equality. So equity meaning that you're trying to put everyone on the same level, not by giving everyone the same things, but maybe you have to boost someone up. So you give people differential treatment. And in this case, maybe you have to accept more women just because that just because they have these antibodies doesn't mean that they're not 
capable of accepting new lungs, right? So I think yeah, that's, that's, that's a that's a perfect way of explaining it. The equity, you know, equality is based on the resources you're giving them. Equity is based on getting them to, to the same endpoint, and that's what we're trying to do. Is is it's different to transplant um, a person who has these antibodies than it is to transplant a person who doesn't. But our goal is to get them to the same endpoint, and that's that's exactly what it is. It's an equity focused um, uh, treatment pathway. Yeah, awesome. So so that one was a little specific. We spoke about sex and gender specifically, but I'm going to ask you, Dr. Halloran, if you think some social determinants of health, specifically in relation to lung transplant, are major barriers to access in the healthcare system. So for example, the fact that getting a lung transplant can be so expensive between finding housing and not being able to work while in recovery, what kind of social uh, determinants of health do you see in lung transplant? Yeah, so it's it's huge in lung transplant, and it and we're actually very fortunate to be in 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 our system uh, in the Canadian system because uh, in the American system they they sort of colloquially refer to the green screen um, where if if somebody does not have the correct insurance, um, which obviously you know probably twenty greater than twenty percent of the U.S. population doesn't, um, and even if you have insurance, you may not have the right insurance. You don't get seen. It's not even that you get turned down. You do not get seen by the transplant center. So it's even out of sight, out of mind for the transplant docs. So we're very fortunate, I think, to be in a situation where anybody can get referred uh, for us and anybody can be seen. And there absolutely are complex factors in lung transplantation where um, the the someone's financial situation, somebody's support network is very important. Their ability to to have a person there with them. Uh, through this process, or or ideally a network of people, um, their their geography, where they are um, in in uh, in Canada and, and in Western Canada, um, all of this really creates uh, a matrix of of um, uh, you know uh, of access. Uh, whether or not it's positive or negative is a question. What we have tried to do, and this is this is not me. This is the people who built this program. Um, you know, we've been doing transplants here since 1986. Um, we have tried to absolutely bend over backwards to solve those problems. And we now we can transplant geographically people in northern BC, the Northwest Territories, anywhere in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and anywhere in Manitoba. We can transplant a massive geographical area. It may be the largest geographical area that 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 people uh, run a lung transplant program in, say for maybe Australia. Um, and uh, so, so we think we've solved the geographical barrier by basically having people be able to wait for a lung transplant in their home center. And then when we get a donor, we fly them here. We medevac them here from their home hospital. Um, finances, you know, we have tremendous social workers. Skyla Modi is our current social worker who uh, really bends over backwards to try and make this work for people, um, and and you know drug coverage is 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 solved um, uh, for the most part for all their essential transplant medications. Their hospitalization doesn't cost them anything in the public system. Their follow up care doesn't cost them anything in the public system. What can cost them? You're exactly correct. Is um, is really the the period of attending physiotherapy here before the transplant and a and a, and a follow up period here. Uh, for three months after the transplant, where they need to stay, and we have hospital, um, we we have hospital local resources 
that they can access um, uh, that are sort of redu much reduced cost accommodations. But people still do need to uh, dip into their to their savings for that. And particularly people coming from other provinces are needing to spend time in those accommodations. And if the admission gets prolonged, um, that can be a big problem. But that you know, that specific uh, issue is directly being, uh, you know, attempted to be to be addressed by the Alberta Lung Association Breathing Space Initiative. Um, and, and so that that um, initiative is really to try to create a, um, a, a place for uh, for lung transplant recipients, not just to um, exist while they're here, but kind of a, a healing space for them. Um, and a, a grounding space for them, and, it, and it's a it's a really wonderful concept that you know for a for a big program like us that that takes from all over Western Canada is going to be really really um, I think essential. And I, I I know that the Alberta Lung Association has had some great uh, you know donor funding response to that. I, I hope that continues and that everybody sees that as a as a real priority because. Um, the uh, the the um, the gap that it addresses is very important. Um, uh, so, yes, absolutely. Despite being in a publicly funded system, we still have uh, some access issues that are socially determined. Um, but we have wonderful people uh, and, a, and a system that has been engineered to try uh, in every way possible not to create barriers, but to br to break them down. Um, and, and we really do see patients, we see that in our patient population, we see patients across the spectrum um, uh, of, of, uh, of life uh, experience. Um, and, and that enriches the program uh, to, to, to have uh, such a breadth of, of people coming through. We learn from all of them. Definitely. Yeah. It, it, and it's great to hear that there's subsidized housing and things like that coming from from the public side and from the University of Alberta Hospital and things of that nature. I didn't really know that 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 existed. So that's amazing to know that we're getting social workers and everyone trying to tackle this access issue. And then, uh, as you mentioned, over and above Alberta Lungs, breathing space is hoping to be a home away from home for lung transplant recipients. It's going to be a big kind of hotel, a very fancy hotel with with physiotherapists on site, we're hoping, and exercise rooms and a movie theater room and just a place where you can focus on recovery and not focus on the finances and stresses of money when you're recovering. So thanks for commenting on that, Dr. Halloran. And we'll throw it back uh, to Dr. Weatherald for a final question for you. And it's a very large overview question. So I'm wondering what do you think is the most pressing issue in lung transplantation today? And is there anything you can envision being the solution to it? I know, obviously, that's a macro question, but I'm curious about what the next major tasks in lung transplant are. It's a, it's a great question. I think, I think to me, the biggest issue we just talked about, which is which is maximizing equity to this life-saving therapy uh, on the, on the pre-transplant side. But I think the next Probably most important issue to me is uh, relates to how we manage people and, and their immune system after transplant, because it is a major source of some of the complications that patients experience in the short and long term is when we weaken their immune system, they're prone to infections, developing cancers down the road. And I don't think we have solved 
um, personalized. We really haven't developed personalized medicine in this space. And I, I think there are people who probably could get away with less immune suppression and potentially avoid some of those complications, but we don't have a good way of measuring the immune system globally and personalizing treatment to each individual recipient. And I think part of that necessitates the discovery of better ways of measuring rejection, like what Dr. Halloran is doing, so that perhaps we can pick it up earlier. And, and we could do tailored um, uh, immune system suppression based on some markers or biological markers. And people are working on this, I think, but it's an unsolved problem that I think could reduce um, some of the long-term complications that ultimately limits the lives of people who receive a transplant. So, so it's a bigger problem than just one um, specific research project, but I think that that's something we need to focus on um, and solve so that we get better long-term outcomes for each donation. Yeah, that's super great. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you kind of the same question, Dr. Halloran, more so I'd like to tie it to if there's any new technologies or procedures that are making lung transplant more effective and maybe something being researched right now that could affect outcomes of lung transplantation and the likelihood of organ rejection or just what, what maybe expand on what Dr. Weatherall was saying and if there's any new technologies on the horizon. Yeah, so probably probably the big story right now is is um, is something called donor derived cell free DNA, um, and what that is a kind of fancy term for is when the, when any transplant in a person's body gets damaged, um, it's releasing molecules into the bloodstream um, that should not be there, and <clears throat> so when a when a um, pregnant woman has a baby, um, you can find some. Uh, donor-derived cell-free DNA from the baby. But how how do you tell whose is whose, right? How do you tell what's mom and what's baby? How do you tell what's recipient and what's donor? And what this new technology can do remarkably is without even knowing what the genetic makeup of the donor is, it can look at those molecules in the blood, disentangle them, and tell you what's donor, how much is donor. Because we know as the donor as the as the transplanted uh, lung or kidney or liver or whatever gets injured, these molecule markers rise, um, and that can be happening with rejection. That can be happening with infection. But if we had a test like that, where we could say specifically, the value of this test is probably going to say be the clinician can check it and it's normal and everybody's happy. Um, we don't we don't need to worry. Um, because right now what we're doing is looking at lung dysfunction. When is the lung function dropping? And that may, that might be too late for some patients when, when that actually starts happening. So this, this, uh, could be a really, really important new, uh, technology. It's being deployed in the United States already. Uh, we haven't been able to convince funding bodies here that it's, that it's, um, um, that it's, you know, worth, uh, public money, but, uh, we're working on that, and and it's going to really add, I think, to our armamentarium of being able to look at a patient and say there's no concerns, uh, or uh, if there are concerns, to be able to triangulate this. And, and part of um, our new, we've we've launched a new study that um, will look at the molecules in biopsies and also in relationship to these to these damage markers in the bloodstream. Um, and in relationship to conventional markers of immune system activation, like those circulating antibodies against the transplant. Um, and so we've launched that study uh, as, as, again, an, an international 
multi-center study. Um, we've, we're starting to recruit patients here now um, and uh, to really try and make our diagnostic toolkit more robust. As Jason's alluding to, it's 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 been fairly um, rudimentary and um, and uh, uh, you know, in some ways, alarmingly um, rudimentary for many, many years. And, and so this is this is an area of growth that's very exciting uh, for, for us and I think will will help patients. I think patients will live longer eventually because of this yeah, and live better. That's so incredible. It goes the the, the technology te technological and the scientific, aspect of it how it works goes right over my head but it's incredible to know that that sort of thing is on the horizon little, basically little little damaged pieces of the transplant in the bloodstream that you can detect right um and you can tell that they're from the transplant so there should not be any parts of the transplant in the bloodstream because uh if it's an intact working organ so so that the, to, to move beyond having to interrogate the, the lung tissue specifically with a biopsy and look at the bloodstream for these damaged molecules is a big change for us. Right. Yeah. That's super amazing. That, that That's awesome to know that, that that research is being done and hopefully it gets implemented and funded in Canada soon. So uh, I, I don't like to just end on a cold cutoff. I'd like, I, I like to let my guests have, have a little bit of uh get anything off their chest that they want to at the end of the episode. So for you, Dr. Weatherall, what's coming up for you in research? Anything you want our listeners to know? What, what are you working on? I, I love anything. If you got nothing, that's okay. But if whatever you have coming up, that'd be awesome to to know. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on a project that's sort of not directly related to, to lung transplantation, but it has to do with managing um, uh, a complication of end-stage lung disease called right heart failure. And as I said before, any any kind of severe lung disease can cause pressure on the heart, right side of the heart and right heart failure. And unlike failure of the left side of the heart, we have really no therapies that work other than transplanting the lungs. And so I'm, I'm uh, working with the team across the country to develop a, a really innovative way of running a clinical trial to test existing drugs that are out there that might work for right heart failure in a platform trial that is a, a type of clinical trial that was highly effective in identifying treatments for COVID-19. And so we're using that same approach to try to uh, um, you know, look at existing drugs that might work for right heart failure and see if, if we can develop that in, in, into effective treatments. Um, and so this will be a, a really innovative way of, of uh, testing this can be a consequence of lung disease or heart disease or pulmonary hypertension and it's it's a big gap in our our therapeutic uh, uh, armamentarium so so that's kind of what the next five years look like for me amazing what about you dr halloran anything on the horizon for you research wise yeah just sort of alluding to the studies we talked about already we're we're um you know we're we're running a, a prospective study here looking at <clears throat> the way that um, the diaphragms function after lung transplant um, and how that contributes to lung dysfunction and maybe something that's modifiable. Um, and uh, and then, you know, working with our working with our our international colleagues on on um, on, you know, the the uh, standards in lung transplantation and uh, supporting international studies um, uh, with uh, through the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation. But yeah, just to just to say, I think that uh, thank you to the Alberta Lung Association for the interest in in lung transplantation. I know that they've sort of made this um, uh, a a, um, a priority, and and that we are very grateful for that. 
um, and that we will, um, you know, continue to hopefully work with with them in the future uh, in, um, you know, really trying to help help these people with with advanced lung disease and 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 to live their best life after a lung transplant. Definitely. Yeah. Well, from myself and everyone at Alberta Lung, we're incredibly grateful for the work that both of you do in lung transplant in Alberta. And it kind of baffles me to think that just sometimes you think of Alberta as this lowly prairie province that not a lot goes on, but incredible work is done in science and specifically pulmonary medicine every single day. So we'll, we'll obviously continue to work with you. It's funny, I was actually, I had a li small little epiphany when we were taping this episode and I kind of thought like, how did I get so lucky that I get to talk with physicians like both of you every day when I don't work for Alberta Lung anymore? Technically, I'm not a full salaried employee, but I still get to have these amazing conversations. So I just consider myself lucky that I get to still host this podcast and talk with physicians and doctors and surgeons and people like you that are that are on the front lines and doing work that needs to be done. So thank you both for being on the show today and giving us your very valuable time. Well, thank you, Jacob. It's a it's an important um this is an important endeavor that you're doing, shining a light on things like this. Yeah, thank you for having us and letting us chat with you. It's been a pleasure. No worries at all. I turned off the heat in my room so we wouldn't have buzzing in the background of my mic. So I am freezing and I'm going to go turn that on and I will send us right through to the outro. What an incredible interview with Dr. Halloran and Dr. Weatherald. I learned so much about lung transplant and lung transplant research that I didn't already know. A huge thank you to both of our guests today for giving their valuable time and being on our show. As we always do at the end of our episodes, I'll give my final three concluding thoughts of the major themes from the show. The first thing that stuck out to me was the delegation of duties that exists in lung transplantation. I made the assumption that the surgeon who performs the transplantation works with the patient before and after the operation, but Dr. Weatherald and Dr. Halloran corrected me and said that this is not the case. Lung transplant is a combined medical-surgical discipline and the huge network of people that are needed to ensure that the transplant works and the organ is not rejected is massive. From intensive care physicians to nurses to dietitians to physiotherapists, Everyone is so important in the intricate network of lung transplantation. And this goes back to, I mean, maybe it's a stretch to make the analogy, but it goes back to the theme that we've talked about almost every single time on this show of just the networks that exist within lung health. So that's both within your body, your lungs are connected to every other body system. And it's also outside the body. It's, it's the people who help make sure our lungs are functioning properly and in this case in lung transplant the network is massive for ensuring that lung transplants work and are effective and that the patients recover quickly thereafter so just thinking about like people that are involved in the medivac so getting the patient from wherever they are in western canada basically to the university of alberta hospital super quickly when they need to do the operation that's one just one piece of this massive network and then it's the connections between uh the, b before the, the surgery and after the surgery it's obviously the operation everything that's necessary in the operation um so it, it's just incredible to think of it's it's all the unit it's all all the hospital workers everyone from intensive care nurses to schedule people who schedule the surgery 
everyone is so important so we can't forget that it's a massive operation and just be thankful for healthcare practitioners and healthcare uh, workers that help to make sure that we're healthy every day. Secondly, I think that Dr. Weatherall's research project that he won a lung health research grant from Alberta Lung is so interesting. In a way, it is research to better understand what we should research in the future. He said that research being funded should be relevant to the people that it affects, so what better way to know what matters most to those undergoing lung transplantation than by interviewing those who have gone through the operation and those who work to help the people who have gone through it. It's just incredible to think of that. It's not, it's not something that you think research typically is. When, when I think of clinical research, I think of like drug studies or maybe not clinical research, but just research in general. You think of physicians and researchers looking under microscopes. But this, this research project is a little bit more interview-based. So it's talking to people who have gone through lung, tra lung transplant. And it's talking to physicians who work in lung transplant every day. And it's asking them what matters most to you and what is most important to you. And from that, they come up with a list of basically top 10 research topics that are most important to lung transplant in the next little while. So it's specifying what needs to be researched. And obviously that's a huge, that's a huge goal and a huge task because without knowing what we have to research and what is most important, you're kind of just going about research blindly. You have to know what is most important. If, if what you're researching isn't important to the group that it's going to affect, what does it really matter? So this project that Dr. Weatherald is hosting and is conducting is absolutely amazing. So we're so thrilled to partner with Dr. Weatherald and we're excited to see the results that his research produces. The final major takeaway that I noticed in the interview was about how Dr. Halloran mentioned that he's grateful that we work within the Canadian context and health landscape and that major costs for lung transplants like the surgery and the drugs are taken care of. Additionally, he mentioned that certain things are subsidized for lung transplant patients, but that still isn't enough to cover the total costs that lung transplant patients have to endure, and that is why breathing space is so important. I thought it was interesting how he mentioned that in the United States, their, their health system is so different that if you don't have the proper insurance, you don't even get to be seen to, to test if you're a good candidate for a lung transplant. Whereas in Canada, obviously that's not the case. You're seen, you're tested. Uh, we determine if you're a good candidate for lung transplant and everything goes ahead. So we have to be grateful that we're in Canada, that we're in our, our health, our public health care system. But obviously as I keep reiterating and as I always have, the Canadian health system is not free. There are things that still cost and maybe they're not exactly health related per se. Like obviously you're not gonna pay for any part of the surgery, but you're gonna pay for everything that surrounds the surgery. Having to come to Edmonton if you're not already living here, having to pay for accommodation, having to pay for your groceries, not being able to work during the process, having to take a caregiver away from their lives and maybe they work and maybe they contribute to your household income and them not being able to do that while they're taking care of you and while they're being your caregiver if you're a lung transplant patient. So we just have to remember that while there are amazing aspects of the Canadian healthcare system, 
there are still parts that aren't covered and financial issues still take precedence in the minds of many. So we have to be careful just how we think of things. We have we, we can't say, oh, you, why can you not afford that lung transplant? It's free. That's not the case. So just remembering that breathing space is incredibly important. It's an amazing project and we need more donors, not just in Alberta. We need donors across Western Canada and across Canada in general because this facility will benefit people from across all of our nation. Okay, well, thank you for listening to our episode today and learning with me about lung transplant and organ rejection and all different kinds of research. I'm taping this episode in mid-January, and if you live in Alberta like me, you'll remember the polar vortex that we got. So I'm just hoping that everyone stays safe in these cold winter months and take care of your health first and foremost. Perfect. Well, that will do it for this edition of the Unsung Lung Podcast. Head to our website, www.ablung.ca, for any more information you need or questions you may have or to donate to projects like Breathing Space. But for now, I'll leave you with our motto. As always, just remember to breathe.